Hi, this is Mon, Daniel and Bobby with a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending Friday the 26th of August 2022. Coming up on the podcast this week, Cinema Nova is turning 30 and its CEO Christian Connolly came in to chat with us all about it and Ben Altham for his weekly politics rap took a deep dive into Morrison's secret portfolios and its implications. I have trouble seeing things that are right in front of me but one thing you won't miss is a mural by artist Aretha Brown and we discuss the universal honking sequence when someone kicks a goal. On the first day of Radiothon 2022, we were joined by Australian music legend Mark Seymour and we round out the week with comedians and golden gibbo winners Nat Harris and Eddie Perfect. Melbourne's own. Triple R. On August 27, 1992, Cinema Nova opened its doors on the ground floor of the Van Ligon Piazza in Carlton. Three decades on, the Humble Tweed Theatre has grown to become the biggest and most popular independent cinema in the Southern Hemisphere with 16 screens, its bar and kitchen and year-long calendar of festivals and events. And to celebrate the milestone, Nova Cinema is kicking off a week of festivities. And to tell us about it, the CEO of Nova, Christian Connolly, joins us now. Christian, welcome back to Triple R. Oh, it's great to be in the studio. It really is, isn't it? Uh... Because last time you were on, I think maybe it was Primal Screen and I, we were probably in the middle of some kind of lockdown. Uh, and uh, tell us about how you're reflecting on the 30 years in this climate. Um, it's one of those things where it's difficult to begin, where to work out where to begin. I mean, it's um, for me, it's been sort of a lifelong journey to get to this point. Um, but I, I mean, like I said to somebody the other day, I mean, I remember my first visit to Cinema Nova, which was for Lars von Trier's Breaking the Wave, sat in the front row, looking up there at that screen, not a good place to sit because, of course, he loves a shaky camera. But from that point, um, I think the thing is that cinema's kind of gone through this really interesting evolution ever since that in Melbourne. I mean, we've, we've got such a rich, rich cinema culture in this city and it's down to the two people who started Cinema Nova, which is Barry Peake and Natalie Miller. They ran the Valhalla in, um, in Westgarth as well as the Longford in Turak Road. And there's two people who sort of bought a quirky point of view to cinema in this city that doesn't exist anywhere else in Australia. And I suppose, uh, you know, together we've really dedicated ourselves to making sure that what we offer is um, is different to what is offered everywhere else. We don't play Star Wars. We don't play the Marvel films. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, I don't think we've ever pl- – I know we played one Batman once, but it was a bit of a moment of desperation. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we've really, really made sure that um, we really follow the culture and uh, bringing, bringing people um, the sort of variety that we, that we bring um, is – so rewarding and I think is also so enriching to our cinema culture and makes us a world-class cinema city. What's a film that you're proud of to have given a run and you feel maybe gave legs to for an audience? Gosh, a couple. Uh, Can I I name two? Yes. All right. Uh, One of them was a film called Margaret, uh, which was uh, directed by Kenneth Lonergan, who went on to, um, I think, win an Oscar for um, Manchester by the Sea. And it's an all-star drama. Anna Paquin, uh, Matthew Broderick, uh, a really great, really great cast. The studio and the filmmaker couldn't decide on the cut of the film, and ultimately it sat in the shelf for like about five or six years. Mm. And one day, it just sort of got mentioned to me by by one of the um, the toppers at Fox, and he said, "Oh, we've got this little movie, Margaret." And I was like, "I remember, that. I remember that film. It hasn't been around for years. No one's ever seen it." He goes, "Oh, we've got a print." I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> We put it on screen and we outgrossed the rest of the world combined in Carlton alone. And then the other one, the second film, is Call Me By Your Name, which is a movie that's very, very um, special to me. I remember meeting Luca Guadagnino at the um, at the premiere at the Melbourne Film Festival uh, just before it came out here on Boxing Day. 
And it was a movie that just moved me to my core and um, sort of a bit of a, not a life changer, but something that really shook me in a really wonderful and positive way. And, uh, and I remember just walking out of that theatre and just putting the campaign together that night with the Sony team and um, and we outgrossed uh, entire territories, like in continents in really? Carlton. Yeah, we just, yeah, like uh, South America, Korea, major, major markets. Um, we, we made more at the theatre than we did, they did in entire um, continents. So, you know, when when you can kind of um, elevate something in that way, it's it's really exciting. And, and the same is true of when we do an Australian movie, uh, whether it's something like, say, Samson Delilah, which we're retro- doing a retrospective screening of um, from Thursday, or um, Sapala Italiano, the, the documentary about Ligon Street, you know, you know, we get to showcase these great Australian movies and the diversity of what we have, we, what we put on screen in this country, and you know, that's as I say, that's really, it's really very enriching and mm. exciting. Was what? it hard? Oh, no. Was it hard to because there is a you know a special program to celebrate thirty years, and those films you've mentioned, of course, are on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, bigger ones like Parasite. Mm. How hard was it to narrow it down to these ones? It's actually very, very challenging and on two levels. Uh, the first one is that um, a lot of the films that we would have, you know, played back in the 90s uh, are very, very difficult to come by now in any kind of digital format. They only exist on 35mm and when we did the shift to digital about 15 years ago, um, you know, you, you, you basically just have to rip out the 35mm projector and put in mm. something completely different. So... Uh, you know, getting access to them is, is quite difficult. Uh, but at the same time, though, um, we, we've got this incredible tool that nobody outside the industry can believe exists where everybody can actually see what one, and a, one another are doing in terms of box office. And you can kind of measure yourself. How are we performing mm-hmm. against our competitors or interstate or, you know, what factors might be at play in terms of why films live or die at the box office, whether it's weather or other things like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so what you can do is you can actually grade uh, sorry, rank it so that you can see all you know the, the most popular films down to the least popular films, and going down that list was just it's too much for me. I just I literally just sort of you know scream out loud every so often when you come across a title, but something like um Bend It Like Beckham, which uh, which we which I actually one of the first films that I ever released in cinemas when I was working for Village back in 2002. And that's a movie that I haven't thought about for so long, but it was such a great movie. And I remember like having sold out crowds um, at the theatre that I was running at the time where people were literally sitting in the aisles watching mm. that movie. And and again, that was all about you know visibility and seeing people of colour on screen and these sort of non-traditional um, screen roles, which was so exciting. So, And also um, directed by a female filmmaker. So... You know, getting the opportunity to go back and bring that back to the theatre, I think, is great because people who would have seen that as kids would now have kids of probably similar age to when they actually saw that movie and getting getting people to come back and mm. show things like that to their children rather than, say, the umpteenth rerun of Finding Nemo, I think is a great <laughs> opportunity. What role does hospitality play in your daily thinking about the cinema experience? Mm, okay. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I actually had a hospitality background. Um, I worked for – I ran a restaurant at Southgate that's long gone now called uh, Wolfgang Puck Cafe and um, I ran that for about four or five years. And um, and, and so, yeah, um, uh, you know, customer service is very important to me. Um, we, you know, we put a lot of energy and effort into making sure that we can service what our customers expect of us. Um, you know, our, our staff are perhaps a little bit older than what you might find at your local multiplex. And they're certainly a lot more knowledgeable um, my office is uh, located just off the bar and so I kind of hear, overhear a lot of great conversations between our customers and our staff talking about like 
what to see or what they've just seen and and I just love hearing that engagement and I enjoyed that too I mean sometimes you know just if we're just gonna be busy and um, and I need to come out and help out on the floor talking to people as they're leaving the movies asking them what they're seeing or if they're getting a coffee what they're about to watch I mean that's I, I love that because I think we all love talking about cinema we love talking about culture and um, and you know be able to engage with that is uh, on a regular basis with your customers, I think mm. is is a nice reminder about why you're actually doing it in the first place. What about the trip down memory lane of the exhibition that you've got lined up? Oh, what, what strikes you? Talk again, just so sort of positively triggering. If that's a, if that's a <laughs> I don't know if you can say that, but it's just sort of really fascinating. I mean. We're looking through all these amazing photographs of what Ligon Court used to look like, not just before, no, not just when I started working there uh, almost 15 years ago, but what it looked like 30 years ago. It is a completely different beast, and it's been remade and reshaped around the cinema so many times. I mean, just in my time, we had like Borders in there and where oh, Brunetti yeah. was, and then I think there was something else before that too. I can't remember what it was. Um and you know, of course, readings outlasted all that, which was fascinating too. But um, yeah, like the, for instance, Cinema Five is uh, the former refrigerator for um, a previously located um, uh, Woolworths, and they just basically had this cavern that's like, oh, this could be a cinema. <laughs> um, so you know, it's and and it's sort of grown very organically as well. So that's been really fun, kind of looking back and and even just talking my staff through it because they're also fascinated with like, where was this? Where's that? What you know? Is that the old? No, 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 no. That's downstairs, and it's no longer there, and we turn it into into something different. So that's been really great. And then also going back and um, you know, there's so much wonderful documentation of what we did from you know, you know, when people used to read newspapers, and um, looking at the big ads and the huge things that we used to do. I mean, for me, just running my eye over that. Uh, has been interesting because there's things that I've absolutely forgotten that we did, you know, films that I'd forgotten we played, exclusive releases that, you know, film like uh, Cabin in the Woods, which was previously going to go straight to straight to radio. Uh, we went, rang up the studio, the distributor and said, hey, you know, this movie needs to be seen by people. People love this filmmaker, love these stars. And, um, and we, you know, we got it, we got it, uh, got it on screen. It was, became a quite a considerable hit, mm. you know, things like that, which you just, you just, park in the memory and you mm. never really think about it because you're always thinking about the future and what we're going to do next. Um, so that's been a wonderful experience yeah. for me too. With the rise of streaming and especially in the last two years not being able to go to the cinema, mm. obviously we know where your preference lies. But was, it, was there ever a point where you were worried that things, cinemas oh, yeah, might go absolutely, down? Absolutely, yeah. There was a, tr- a tr- like two, almost two years of existential dread. <laughs> um, but I, I do remember... Um, like I can't quite put my finger on when it was, but at some point I was we were back in the theater in the theater and I was watching something on screen at, at the cinema. It might have been that movie Nine Days uh, came about about a year and a half ago, and it was set in kind of like like pre life. Um, and the guy from Arrested Development was in it, and um, uh, the guy from the guy who played the clown from It was in it. It was this actually a really interesting studio film. Um, uh, sort of, yeah, set in this otherworldly space and just sort of sitting there and have that wash over you um, I think is, is really a nice reminder of why we go to the cinema. And, and the, other, the other extraordinary experience was not too long ago when um, a film we're still playing now and we're playing for a couple of months and is actually remarkably, despite the pandemic, has become one of our biggest films of all time. It's going to become our sixth biggest film of all time, Everything Everywhere All at mm. Once. And that movie, um, 
I just remember watching the trial went to America at the very beginning of the year, right in the middle of Omicron, which was actually terrific because you just walked into galleries without having to line up. But that's another story. <laughs> um, and I was watching the trailer for this movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and I thought, oh, that looks amazing. We're going to do so well out of that film. When I finally saw it, um, I was like, wow, this is, this is going to be big. And we ran an early screening of it, and I remember seeing the, the, the seating chart just filling up down to the front, very front row, and I thought, I, I think I need to be there to see it with the audience. And it's a terrific film because you've got you got laughter, you've got tears, you've got moments of absolute silence. It's got everything in it, and just watching that in an audi- with an audience, a full audience who were fully engaged with that with that film, was incredible. Like people were crying, people were laughing so loud. Just those instantaneous moments where two hundred and fifty people all erupt in laughter at precisely the same moment. It's like. This is what it's all about. Yeah, you know? it's not replicable, is no. it? Uh, well, congratulations on 30 years. It's become an institution. It's hard to imagine lying on the street without Nova Cinema now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you want to get really nostalgic, did I read $5 correctly? That's correct, yes. So on um, <laughs> on the 29th of the 8th, so this coming Monday, uh, we're going to go back to 1990s discount day prices, $5. I mean, normally it's only $10 if you come after 4 o'clock, but we're going to go right down to $5 for that day. And the great thing is that, of course, Melbourne Film Festival ended um, in person in Melbourne on Sunday. And so all these great movies are arriving this Thursday. Uh, mm. So it, we've got this fresh crop of terrific new films. So I hope people should come along right. and check them out. I'll try bucks. and squeeze it in between shoots. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, Christian Connolly, CEO of Cinema Nova. For more details about the exhibition and the, the films on display as Cinema Nova turns 30, head to cinemanova.com.au. Christian, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Triple R. The opposition has a point of order. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Order, order, order. You humbug. Order. 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 The level of interjections is far too high. Order. Order. Speaker. Journalist and academic Ben Eltham joins us to talk politics on breakfast. This morning, Ben. Yeah, good morning. How are you guys? Good, thank you. Excellent. Uh, we're, we're talking revolutions, uh, sorry, revelations <laughs> out of, maybe revolutions, um, out of this, this plagued book. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm all for a revolution, but actually <laughs> what's been revealed in this book is slightly more sinister, unfortunately. So if you've been following federal politics over the last week, it's been convulsed by revelations that Scott Morrison appointed himself to at least five secret ministries. So what does that mean? Basically, he went to the governor general and he got himself sworn in as kind of like an alternative minister to the real ministers in five different portfolios. Um, And it's really serious. I mean, these are ministries including Home Affairs and Treasury, two of the most important. Um, Now, he says that he didn't use his secret powers, uh, except in one case where he cancelled an offshore gas drilling uh, project um, off the coast of New South Wales. Um, But there's a lot of people now digging into exactly what Morrison did. And, of course, the bigger issue really is what is the sort of constitutional implications of this and, and what it reveals really for the corruption at the heart of the Morrison government. And what does it reveal? Well, it was pretty bad, basically. (laughs) So when you've got the prime minister of the country secretly making himself uh, an alternative minister to five other ministers, not telling the public, not even telling them, and not telling his party that he'd done it, um, what you're talking about there is almost like a secret alternative government set up within the prime minister's office, um, an alternative power structure. Um, There are really quite sinister implications for that. 
Um, if he had wanted to, he could have used that really to um, override any of those decisions that the ministers had made. Um, he could have done all sorts of interesting and dangerous stuff using those secret powers. And that's why people are asking so many questions now. Have any other former prime ministers done that? And if so, what was their reasoning? No, this is unprecedented. This has never happened before in Australian constitutional history. Um, other prime ministers had um, what we might call a more normal cabinet government, right? So in the Australian system, the prime minister is not even mentioned in the constitution. It's meant to be a cabinet. And the, and the term that the constitution uses is the executive council. Okay, so those are the ministers. Um, so the ministries, the cabinet together, the ministers sit around a big table and they're meant to make collective decisions about, you know, the future of the country, the policy of Australia. Um, what happens when you have a prime minister that overrides that in secret, I think is really, really serious. Um, and some of the commentary around that has touched on that, but I think we're still only sort of unpicking uh, what the implications are. Um, there's big implications politically, of course, as well, because, you know, all of his colleagues that he didn't tell are obviously a bit upset. Um, and a lot of Liberal Party politicians are backpedalling pretty quickly. And, of course, Morrison himself gave just an absolutely terrible press conference last week in which he tried to explain what he was doing and he waffled and it was kind of classic Morrison word salad. Um, a lot of people have described it almost as gaslighting where he sort of told people that, well, you know, the reason that I didn't need to tell you was because you didn't need to know, you know. So it was um, real kind of textbook, almost abusive kind of behaviour from the former prime minister um, and then to top it all off he went on facebook and made funny memes about it all um, sort of making light of, of his decisions so um yeah not a good week for australian democracy i would say he's refused to stand down or quit do you think he'll stand by that yeah <laughs> scott morrison yeah okay great <laughs> he doesn't think he's done anything wrong i don't think he's in i don't think he's capable of understanding uh, how bad this is um, so, yes, he said he's going to continue on as the member for Cook on the backbench uh, of the Australian Parliament. Um, he's not giving any sign of quitting anytime soon. And um, you'd have to say that it's not likely he's going to find himself a lucrative post-politics job anytime soon either. So not in social there may media? There not be many opportunities for him <laughs> to go to. Yeah, it's been interesting to see Cabinet Ministers uh, finally aggrieved at the secrecy that the public has been the victim of for Morrison's entire career. But when it affects Karen Andrews personally, that's when his predilection for secrecy is a problem. Yeah, yeah, super interesting point, I think, Daniel. Um, yeah, if you think about um, the way Morrison governed really for his entire career, it was marked by secrecy and it was marked by control um, and, and a desire to control um, not just um, events or policies, but also his colleagues in really quite sinister ways. Um, if you go back to even his first stint as minister, as immigration minister, um, he was the minister during the riot at Manus Island in which Razor Barati was murdered. And um, it, within 24 hours of that murder, Morrison had got on the record and blamed the inmates themselves for that murder and said it was the, the inmates who were trying to break out of the detention centre that caused that violence, uh, we know that that was false. You know, um, There's just such a long track record of the lies that Morrison has told, really serious lies um, throughout his career um, to try and cover up for you know things that he's done, also to gain political advantage. And really, this is just the latest example of it, but it's probably the most concerning one. 
And, and it's because, you know, if, if you were an authoritarian leader who wanted to try and establish some kind of authoritarian autocracy in Australia, um, this is a playbook you could use now, you know, unless unless Labor fixes this up. Um, this is this is an option open to future prime ministers to secretly appoint themselves as ministers. They can then veto or take decisions over the heads of every other minister in their cabinet. Um, when when you're the minister for home affairs, you've got all of these internal security powers, right? When you're the treasurer, you're in charge of the money. Um, when you're the mining minister, you've got the veto or the right to approve mining projects, right? So you can see the kind of powers that he gave himself. And of course, he didn't tell anyone, not even his colleagues. Mm. Uh, yeah, there's, Albanese was making noises about a royal commission into just the pandemic response of all tiers of government. Uh, and it's, I was interested to sort of be reading the, um, the code report. Remember the inquiry into hotel quarantine, which came out in, what, December of 20... Four days before Christmas, I think. And uh, Jennifer Cote makes noises about the Westminster you know, responsibilities and, and what can happen when we don't have clear delineated power structures. Yeah, it is really serious. So in his media conference last week, he actually mentioned the phrase emergency powers. Um, now, journalists from SBS actually picked him up on that because, of course, if you've covered countries uh, in Southeast Asia, in Africa, um, you'll know that the phrase emergency powers is freighted with all sorts of associations, you know, um, let, let's just use the most obvious example. It was the, the Reichstag fire, which convinced the German parliament to give Hitler emergency powers to take over German de democracy. But, you know, closer to home, um, countries like Singapore have been governed under authoritarian emergency powers for decades. Um, once you have democratic leaders using emergencies to try and implement, um, you know, end runs around democratic accountability, that's really concerning. And we also know the Lieutenant General Fruin, remember the, the guy with the uniform who was in charge of the vaccine rollout? Mm -hmm. um, there was apparently um, some considerable argy-bargy between him and Greg Hunt during the, the pandemic where he was basically telling Greg Hunt, well, I was appointed by the Prime Minister, I report to the Prime Minister, so you can't tell me what to do, Health Minister. You know, so that's the kind of thing that was going on inside the Morrison government as Morrison built this kind of alternative power structure. Do, have we leaned this way in some sense because of the presidential uh, people, maybe politicians accept presidential powers for themselves because the, we as a culture talk about politics in a presidential way? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I also think there's been a long term trend towards more power concentrated inside the prime minister's office. Um, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet is the most powerful department in the federal public service. Um, the Prime Minister's office itself um, is the biggest office of all of the of the ministers' offices. I mean, that look, that's obvious, right? Well, that shouldn't be surprising. But there's been a long run trend to have more and more concentration of power in the PM's office. Um, you know, I think Kevin Rudd was a particularly bad example of that. He concentrated a lot of power around his person. He had a kitchen cabinet, small number of ministers who made important decisions. He sidelined his broader cabinet. 
And Morrison really continued that trend, you know. Um, and it's not democratically accountable because that's not the way the Australian system runs. It's meant to be a collective decision made by the cabinet. The prime minister is meant to be first among equals, but uh, not constitutionally more powerful than the other ministers. And even if we have a presidential system in which we tell voters to vote for this particular leader or this other leader, um, I don't know if that's necessarily healthy either. Mm. Um, you know, we need to have a separation of powers. Uh, we need to be able to have proper checks and balances on the exercise of power. And we need accountability for the decisions that have been made. And you can't have accountability if the decisions are secret. That's right. <laughs> well, I, I think Guy Rundle and Crikey was writing on the weekend about the Whitlam ministry and he and the deputy PM Lance Barnard sworn into 27 ministries uh, before the caucus was in a position to elect its ministry. But I suppose one significant difference there is that it was not done in secret. No, it wasn't done in secret, but I'd argue it wasn't necessarily a good thing for the Whitlam government either. I mean, this is obviously going back a whole generation now, but, you know, Whitlam crashed through with a whole bunch of policies, very controversial policies. And later in his government, he had some very serious integrity scandals, including a, a secret overseas loan scandal that helped bring down the Whitlam government. So, you know, um, it, one of the reasons it's good to have accountability and transparency is it stops you making bad decisions. Mm. And I'd argue that was a particular big problem for the Morrison government. That's right. Well, Ben Eltham, fascinating as always. And uh, let's do it again next week. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Triple R. I got my car rost uh, rosted. Rosted. I got my car rosted recently, which is also known as washed. Um, <laughs> and after getting the car washed, I went home and I realised as I went to go into my garage, garage, whatever. Uh, Garage. That my God, am I going to get this story out or what? I don't know. I mean, I can't wait to know what it's about. Why don't we play a track? Um, I went to uh, press. The, I was looking for my remote, and it wasn't where it normally is in the front bit, just underneath the charger. And so I was at, maybe it wasn't rusted on. <laughs> well, it must have been. Anyway, so I had a look around. It wasn't anywhere. I was like, oh, so I had a look inside the um, console in the middle. I had to. Then another car came behind me. It's like how embarrassing. Mm. So I had to pull over. Uh, I looked everywhere. I looked in the glove compartment. I looked in all the sides, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And I was just like, oh god, I'm gonna have to go back to the bloody car wash and see if it's on the ground if they've. If they've, because they've moved it from where it was, but where have they moved it? And as I said, I looked everywhere. I looked in the boot. I didn't want to have to go back, but I drove back. Anyway, I drove back and I was very annoyed that someone had moved it and now I had to come back. And so I spoke to the guy who um, served me. He's like, is everything okay? I said, well, I can't find my garage remote and now I can't get into my car park. So someone must have moved it. It was here. And then I opened the door and he goes, is this it? Mm. And it was sitting on the passenger seat. And you got mad at him. Well, I didn't overly, but I was I was annoyed. Mm. And then that annoyance went straight to myself. <laughs> and I just went, oh, yeah, thank you. He said yes, but I wanted you to point it out. Yeah, but you didn't put it back where it was. No. So it was, you know, I looked everywhere. Oh. Like, I, I didn't have to open anything. I just had to look across the seat yeah. and it was sitting in the middle of the seat. It was a black seat. It was a black remote. Who cares? I looked everywhere except it was right in front of me and mm. I couldn't bloody see it. God, I was so annoyed and embarrassed with myself. It's embarrassing when you you go onto the attack 
to be accusing this guy. Well, you know, when I did, I was trying to be as polite as possible, and but I was quite stern. But like, you'd made the effort to go back there. Absolutely. He knew. He, knew. he would have loved seeing oh, it. Definitely. Oh, definitely. You mean... What a day of work that would have been. <laughs> <laughs> seeing Bobby McCumber twist and turn. Yeah. <laughs> On a hoisted so elegantly on her own petard. <laughs> oh, that woman with the bird pool all over her all over her car came back. Last what night the exact same thing happened to me. What? Coincidentally, not the exact same thing. I don't have a I don't have a fancy garage, remote control yeah. garage. <laughs> um, I just put my car into neutral and wait till it hits something to stop. <laughs> but I um no, we got we got takeaway. We got Indian takeaway for dinner and um and got it delivered. I don't usually like to do that, but my I can't drive my car at the moment because there's a flat tire. Anyway, um, but I'd read these. It was a new place, and I'd read these reviews, and a lot of them were like great, love it, blah 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 blah. But a few of the negative ones said they forgot X off my order. They forgot this, and I think I had put that in the back of my head and thought, oh, I oh, forgot yeah. to forget something. So it came around packing everything. Oh, no samosas, no samosas here. And I was like, I oh, love that'd be right. And I knew knew we shouldn't have strayed from our regular. Um, Looked at, looked through the bag and then looked around the bench and couldn't see anything. So then called them up and said, "Oh hi, I just um we just had a delivery and I've noticed that actually it doesn't matter. Thank you very much." Yeah. <laughs> As I was talking to them, didn't order. Saw, no, they were there. They were sitting right on the bench. Oh. But just like in a different container to what I was used to. So I had to like and have a good night. The guy was so bamboozled. He's like, "Okay, thanks." <laughs> <laughs> Just an angel. Nothing. Just wanted to to say thank you for my order. I'm sure it's going to be delicious. Yeah. The whole (laughs) bending over in the car, is there anything less edifying than your ass hanging out the door, you know, (laughs) moving the the seat forward and back, trying to find the sweet spot of where this coin or charger or whatever the hell you're looking for is? God, it's awful. (laughs) And why don't they make it easier to look? Like, there are always so many nooks and crannies underneath car seats. I know, it's ridiculous. Too many. Too many nooks and too many... What's the point? What what can one do with that many crannies? I don't understand. It's just cranny overload in my car. I would like to make more use of the crannies. Like, I would like to have a conch be like, no, that that cranny is where I keep, you know... Yeah. Put a container in there. Yeah, that's a good idea. Can't adjust the seat, but you've got a Tupperware container full of of, remotes. Full of charger cables that I don't need. There shouldn't be any space. There shouldn't be a cranny (laughs) that is smaller than finger width. Of course not. Mm. But do you mean, so you want There your... should even be no cranny or, <laughs> or gaping. Or cranny. Yeah, or, or cranny. Or a hole. Yeah, or a hole. Big, <laughs> big gaping cranny. But like gaping crannies or no cranny. So you want, so basically you want like on the sides of the, let's just, the seat. Yeah. You want it filled in. Yeah, I want it filled in. That's yeah. exactly right. So you no coins or anything could fall underneath. Get some get some foam and stuff it in there. Oh, yeah. Some towels. Oh, that's what I'll do. <laughs> but... <laughs> But these middling nooks, like, I, I just want to commit... Because, yeah, you're, you're bending over, you're looking, and I can't believe it was right. Yesterday I was sent to look for a bottle, a bottle by a two-year-old. He okay. sent you? Yeah. yeah demanding. Said, get my bottle. <laughs> it's in the cot or in the bed or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, all right. Easy. Small space. I know. No crannies. So I go and I come back and I say, I can't find it. And I looked all over the room and I even looked under the cot. And then I, he goes, it's there. Like I, I'm, it's like he's <laughs> 25 years old or something. I know. How old is Gabe? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Two or three. Yeah, he's two. <laughs> and uh, he goes in and it's there it is. There are four corners and I missed it. No, so Gabe went back in yeah. and found it. Yeah, he mechanic me <laughs> or car wash like me. 
How did you not Normally see it? Normally the other way around with the he kids, He planted it. it. I don't, he kept it oh, in his pants. that's right. And then when you went looking, he put it in and said, it's there all. Yeah. He just wanted you to bend over and have your pants fall down and you awkwardly. That's right. I explained to him long COVID and daddy has it. <laughs> <laughs> Can't blame me. No, exactly. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Aretha Brown is a Gumbungari artist whose work features everywhere from album covers to La Mama Theatre, Footscray Station, Mabu Mabu Indigenous Restaurant in Fed Square and Bad Apple Studio in Collingwood. Having just returned from London, Aretha is back and founder of the all-femme paint crew Kiss My Art Collective, which this weekend is holding an event called How to Paint a Mural. And to tell us about it, alongside fellow artist Mina Lunig, the activist... At, uh, and former Prime Minister of the National Indigenous Youth Parliament joins us now. Aretha, welcome back to Triple R and Breakfasters. <laughs> Hello. Welcome, Hi, Prime Minister. Thank you. Oh yes. <laughs> wow. I forgot about all that. I'm I like, know. I know. It's weird, huh? <laughs> um, yeah. uh, what, now, it is how to paint a mural what it sounds like on the tin? Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty literal title. Um, so yeah, Kiss My Art is a collective that I formed a few years ago because I was out doing murals, um, and me and my group of kind of girlfriends and, and all female friends were like, you know what, like we should just like we should just call it what it is and call it a collective because I we always joke that we're more like a band than we are like a paint crew. So I was <laughs> like, you know, this is our crew, and um, yeah, we've done we've gone on to do like fourteen public murals now. Mm. Um, both in Sydney, Melbourne, done some in London and Bristol this year. And then, um, yeah, it's, it, I think it's just kind of, for me at this point, um, just wanting to get as many young women painting street art as possible. So mm. the night is going to be really fun. There's going to be some DJs, um, some wonderful kind of women of colour DJing. Uh, and then as well as like a panel where we talk the talk and give away all our like industry secrets <laughs> <laughs> that we have. Is is mural is working on a mural more intimidating or as intimidating as it seems to an outsider? I mean, yeah, it's it's a pretty big thing to do and I think half the reason I wanted to do this panel was I get so many DMs in my Instagram every day from young female artists going, Listen, I've I've been offered this really cool mural opportunity, am I allowed to do it? Mm. And it's actually a, a thing about confidence, that that's what it comes down to. Um, and I think what we're just trying to instill more than anything is that you're allowed to take up space. And that's how I decolonize as an Indigenous artist as well. Because um, mm. it's like you, you can't literally take up space more than doing a, a mural. <laughs> um, and yeah, like I said, I have so many female artists that are incredible, have, you know, have their practices already formed. But it just that taking that next step to go bigger is just can be such a kind of a little bit nerve wracking. Mm. So, yeah. Um, it's about the night's not so much about like this is how you actually paint a mural because you can't really teach someone how to paint. It's like teaching someone how to sing or play guitar. Like you, you can do it, but we don't want to sway people off how they do it themselves. So this is more about yeah, trying to get everyone feeling confident to kind of um, yeah, like take up space and and as young female artists. Was so. there someone that gave you that confidence initially? Because you, I imagine, you have grown in confidence since you started. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I think I just kind of did it and then thought about it later, um, <laughs> to be honest. So I think my first one was at Footscray Station, mm-hmm. um, which was for, um, who was it for? PTV. So there's oh. a big mural at the station there. And then the next one, they just, they've just been getting bigger and bigger. And then after this event in, in about a month, I'm actually starting a painting tour with Kiss My Art. So we're going to India and then Indonesia and then Strawberry Fields Festival and then 
a mural in Melbourne at Collins Arch in about the span of a month and a half. Mm. And I was like, you know what? Why do all these bands get a tour? I want a tour. So, because <laughs> it's extensively what it is. So we've called it a painting tour because I was like, I've never heard of that. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So there's, there's just um, every time they're going bigger and bigger. And for me, it's all about collaborating. I think a lot of mural artists, and I'm not having a go, I promise, but we'll, we'll kind of make works and kind of, um, yeah, there's so many people that go into making a mural like every time I've done one I've always had at least five or six helpers and that that, that will be for most mural artists but usually one person gets the credit and so for me mm. it's a really about being like no this is five or six of us girls coming all of us are under 24 as well yeah. so we're all really young um, what, what's the lowest stakes helper like is there someone like <laughs> traffic control rinses or? the brushes or something yeah. <laughs> I think I've gotten my girlfriend a few times to go get coffee runs oh, for, yeah, for all the all the girls so that's probably like the the lowest tile, and, and you you work your way off, obviously. No. Um, but yeah, it's it's so much. It's just very so much important fun. job, though. Very Absolutely. important job. Um, yeah, artists and their croissants. You take, I take that very seriously. We can't without croissants. But I don't know what we're running off. Jet fuel, probably. Right. So wouldn't get done. No. <laughs> uh, so the Footscray um, mural that you painted. Can you tell me how long does this take? What's the process of planning it and finishing it? Oh, uh, I mean, it's so much bureaucracy. It's like about always about six months of planning. Um, it, it just depends. There's so many variables where you're doing it, who the client is, if they want you to change stuff in the design. The one I'm doing for in India in about a month, that's for the Australian Embassy. And um, mm. again, I, I don't even get to see the wall. So it's like sometimes you get to see it, sometimes you won't. And I think a lot of it's just kind of like you have to be kind of um, flexible. What's the word? Oh, really flexible. But. Um, and again, we've been getting our team are just getting so efficient. You know, at the end of the day, like we are trades people. Like we, we're doing painting. Like that's what we do, and that's what I do is my full time job. So um, we're just getting more and more efficient as a group as well. And we just know how each other work, all, all the girls. So um, we've done works for about in, you know two weeks to like three days to two days. Kind of depends how much people want us to push. Yeah. Um, uh, do you ever incorporate, or have had to incorporate, you know, like a, a window in an inventive way? Like you come up to a wall and it's like <laughs> there's a giant stair outside stairwell, or like a Haskem sign. Or what? Yeah. What kind of inventiveness do you have to approach to individual? murals oh I mean that's half the fun is I don't really like painting on canvases um like I, I love going as big as I can and I think we did one in Smith Street for the, the Converse store and that was a three-story building and we got it was so much fun because we all got to um get like put into all the harnesses and like be on the machines and make it sound like it's really like not a little bit dangerous but it, we, we very much had safety <laughs> people there don't worry but um you know there's a big window and I remember at one point some of the office workers like got us all these Krispy Kreme donuts and like <laughs> put it out the window for us as we were painting <laughs> and I was like wow this is the dream like I this is the best job ever I'm so lucky to do this at 21 um so yeah we, we've done windows we've done bars we, we've kind of done everything at this point I did a caravan that was for a bar and the, the bearded tit in Redfern um by the end of the day like I said this is how I decolonize um it's about literally taking up space um in the same way that male artists would never think about that I've never had a, a straight male artist in audience DMs been like hey do you reckon I'm allowed to do this mural <laughs> or take this opportunity it just has never happened um and that, that's okay I just want to instill that same sense of like no if you get an opportunity to kind of showcase yourself like do it like you, ha you have to just not care mm. as well um and yeah so. when you're making art publicly is there a bit of not heckling, but like you missed a spot or <laughs> did, did the observers, is that a part of the fun? I mean, that's, yeah, that that's 
one of the things about working publicly is it's always going to start off a bit bad and I tell everyone that like I don't like my painting until like the last day because everything just looks a bit dodge <laughs> um but you know you get people come up and for everyone that's you know your work looks amazing there'll be people that will kind of give you the odd comment that throws you off a little bit but you just can't listen to the those odd comments um especially as an indigenous artist as well like there's it's kind of cultural I don't know I, I suppose safety protocols as well which I'll be talking about on Friday to kind of make sure that you know, my work's respected in a public space, especially as I'm physically making, because people will come up and go, oh, you're Aboriginal, and then tell you 10 things they know about Aboriginal people. <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is oh, cool. this is great, but this is like, <laughs> that was wrong. That's That wasn't right. <laughs> that was a little bit weird to say. And it comes from a good place, but people want to connect, but um, it's about, I don't know, it's, it's, it's like, how do you kind of do it in a way that's mm. culturally safe for everyone? Because the other thing is most of the girls in the crew are also Indigenous as well. Um, so it's a very, very niche little group that we've got going. But um, yeah, it's about telling our stories in a way that's sustainable for ourselves because, um, yeah, yeah. As an Indigenous artist, do you find that people have expectations about what Aboriginal art is and when you stray outside of the stereotype. Oh, for sure. can't understand. People want me to do dot art and yeah. I, I don't do dot art. And that, I, again, I've got so many cousins and family members that do do dot art and it's beautiful, but that's just not my style. Um, again, it's like you might see the odd dot here or there, but I'm not a dot artist and that's okay. You know, every Indigenous artist's um, practice is perfectly valid. Um, but yeah, I mean, I use my own symbols that I was taught from my family, um, my my mom is a painter, so I've been taught a lot of kind of cultural symbols from her that I use and I incorporate. But at the end of the day, like all my work's about being a young Aboriginal person living in the city. Um, I don't draw anything I don't see. So a lot of my works are like, I don't know, train lines and Footscray Station and St Kilda Road and um, I don't try to think, magpies, you know. <laughs> yeah. You won't really see, I don't really do like desert animals just because I don't see them. I literally yeah. paint what I see. So maybe an odd dog, I think I've got... That's probably it like, in terms of animals. I, I do a dog and I do, I think I've, I've done a kangaroo because, you know, you see those when you're like out at Hoppers or something, yeah. Hoppers Crossing. But yeah, I, I try to keep it authentic to my experience because at the end of the day, most Indigenous people statistically live in our cities and regional areas. So it's about showing that experience as well because it's just as valid as if I was Desert Mob doing dot art, you know? So, yeah. So, do you ever yeah. see artwork that you've done because obviously it's public and maybe another artist would never see it again and go, oh, I want to add a little bit. Oh, or- my God. Every day. Every day. <laughs> the, but that's the, the – yeah, oh, yeah. The one at Footscray Station, I like – because I go to the station most days and I'm like, oh. That, <laughs> I, I could have done that. I could have changed that a little bit. That's – I feel a bit gammon now. But um, – <laughs> But it's um that's the thing it, the, the the thing I keep telling all the girls as well and I'll be telling people on Friday night is like if you were a young musician and it was your first gig no one's gonna go oh my god that's terrible your first you guys <laughs> played so bad the first time you guys should just stop doing music you'd go no way that was my first gig yeah and every time you're gonna get better and so if we look at visual artists your first mural it's probably no it's not gonna be bad bad's the wrong word but it's not gonna be your favorite and my first one I go oh god and it's so public and so I just have to learn to just like almost um there's like dissociation oh yeah dissociation yeah maybe one day you can you know belt <laughs> it up it. <laughs> oh yeah no and that's the thing a few of them have been tagged as well over the years which is kind of sad but again it's that's that's just the nature of public work it's it's ephemeral and i actually really love that um and so the best part of the worst part about being public is anyone can tag it not, not that they all are a lot of them there's that respect as an indigenous artist but the worst part is everyone can witness it and the best part is everyone can witness it. Mm. So yeah. um, 
Yeah. All right. Well, the show, are we calling it a show? We're we calling it an event. <laughs> it's a bit of all yeah. of it, isn't it? And it's a it's bit a of a party. It's spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's called How to Paint a Mural and it's on at Brunswick Mechanics Institute this Friday, August 26th from 6.30. And as you say, there's DJs and there's, the There'll be some music later on in the night. Yeah. Um, and I should mention as well, I'm doing I'm partnering up with the Deadly Mina Lunig, who's not here today, but she is an incredible Melbourne muralist. Yeah. Um, and for a long time, people, it's kind of a bit, become a bit of a running joke that people get our works confused because we do both do that kind of poppy Australiana yep. style. And so we teamed up and we're like, you know what, we've got we to gotta do something together as a kind of top team muralist at the moment. So And who's invited? Is it, you know? Oh, everyone's invited. Okay. Everybody's invited. Even if you don't want to make a mural, it'll be, there's so many. So it's all the girls in the collective on the panel um, talking about pretty much how to get into it and how to just go larger. And yeah. Even if you're just... Have not, croissant ambitions. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, mm. If you're just a young artist full stop you should come along because there's going to be so much valuable information even okay. if you don't want to do murals so yeah and your insta handle uh enter the dragon okay beautiful <laughs> uh aretha brown is a part of the kiss my art collective how to paint a mural is the event head to eventbrite.com for more details aretha thanks for stopping by thanks for having me everyone triple r I recently got cut off on the road, and I've, I've spoken about this previously. Uh, I, I don't use my horn, no matter how bad it is. I just, for some reason, it's just not in me. I find it confronting and aggressive. Uh, anyway, the other day, uh, it, it, I did it, literally had to slam on my brakes, and Abby's like, you can if you want to honk your horn. Because <laughs> I think I swore in the car, but the, the driver had no idea. I don't even think they saw me. They didn't know what they had done. So I was like, oh, what are you going to do? She's like, oh honk your horn, mm, mm. <laughs> uh, let them know so they don't do it to someone else. Anyway, um, last night I was driving home uh, and it was kind of in the evening and there's this football oval right near my place and there was a young boy kicking a footy with, I assume, his dad who was in the goal square. Looked like he was having fun and I was driving by and then he kicked this unbelievable goal from deep in the pocket and I have honked the horn like you wouldn't believe in <laughs> celebration. And honked it, and he has celebrated like you wouldn't believe. Uh, he's pointed the finger at the car, I'm like honk, 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 <laughs> as we drive past. And he's like, "Really? <laughs> you 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 go berserk on your horn when some kid kicks a goal, but heaven forbid you use it in traffic." But I just. And I loved it. You know, I was excited. The kid was excited. The dad turned around. He smiled. I remember kicking the footy uh, with my brother down the oval and, would, you know, you'd have set shots and you'd play around and whatever else. And if you kicked the goal and, and it wouldn't happen often, it might have happened a couple of times uh, in my childhood, but if someone honked the horn when you got a goal, it was, I mean, mm. you kind of just celebrate to yourself, you and your sibling or whatever, but then when someone else is watching, oh, it just lifts the mood <laughs> and then you get even more excited and... Yeah, more arrogant. But it, it's it's a lot of fun and I yeah, I quite enjoy it. I'm pretty generous on the horn in extracurricular horn oh, yeah. so activities. Yes. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, like if there's a hands or a bucks or something and mm. they're soliciting feedback. Oh yeah. Like why not? Yeah. yeah on the street. What I'm gonna deny them that little honk? Yeah, mm. exactly. Give them the honk. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Mm. If yeah, if people are having a good time <laughs> I, I use my horn for the absolute wrong reasons. But do you use it for the right reasons as well? As in, oh, if yeah. Someone comes I, warning I, think someone. I think I'm a pretty, I mean, I'm with Bobby to a degree where it's like maybe an event's happened and it's like, okay, bygones. Mm. And, and then also adding to the kind of oral cacophony of, and stress mm. of life. Mm. I, I don't like doing that. Like people who, who um, honk their horn in a traffic jam. 
It's oh. always bizarre. Um, it's always like, it, what? Is it just in America? Like, yeah, you just, just in like, films. I don't know. <laughs> well, no, no. I remember being in America in New York and just sitting in a taxi or whatever. Um, and they were just honk. I was like, I'm sorry. What are you honking for? We're literally, we can't move. And he was just sitting there and then just every now and then would just honk his horn. And everyone was just honking for no reason. Like there is yeah. nothing you can do. Why on earth are you honking it's crazy. your horn? One thing, one reason why I like driving a sedan is because uh, when some say I'm stuck behind a car that's invariably bigger than mine, the people behind me, when they honk, I know that it's bypass the honks bypassing me because mm. I'm like they know that I'm not the one holding things up. How do you know? So that? I defer the honk. You don't know that. I don't know for a fact. But you just hope that. But, well, I mean, if there's a bigger car in front of you, yeah, what it, it's obviously not your fault. Thank you, Bobby. <laughs> mm. Only big cars make mistakes. <laughs> no, no, but just the big car the is the one that I can't bypass the big car, and yeah, so if they're yeah. trying to dislodge the jam. I know that I just like picky. I let the is it frog? What is it? Leapfrog. Leapfrog. <laughs> I let frog. the horn leapfrog me. Oh yeah, yeah. That's, no, it is good, and it is sometimes it's hard when, and you try and do the gestures through the windscreen to say it's not you, it's, it's in front, it's not. But yeah. look at you know. Yeah, I they're t- encouraging you to honk. That's what they're doing. They're saying you. Maybe. Stand up for yourself. Mm. Honk that guy in front of you. And does the guy in front ever blame you? Like, look in the rearview mirror? Like, no, no, mm. never. Because that would not make any sense, would it? I mean, I'm trying to think. But the the, the honk, now I'm thrown. Because, <laughs> yeah, what if the honk is to say, Daniel, get some backbone? Yeah, honk yeah. this guy. Honk well, on my behalf. From back here. Yeah, You're why there. am I honking from back honk here? It. Exactly. Mm. You need to step up. <laughs> Subaru. Yeah, don't <laughs> don't take this lying down. Yeah, uh, but uh, I'm pretty, uh, you know, soft on the honk as well. Like it's more just, a, just little... a reminder. Yeah, but yeah. with it, but when, that's why when a kid's scoring a goal, it's like you can lean on it. Oh, absolutely, and I did, and mm. I did down the street a couple more times. Like yeah. I just, I think everyone in the parks around were just turning around, like going, "What the hell is going on? <laughs> this car driving with no one else around." I have a feeling like it would be a pretty recognisable Morse code sound as well. So you'd start with yeah. a long one. Yeah, you go. Can you replicate it? Absolutely. So you go, honk, 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 honk. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's good. the honk of joy. Yeah. It's universally it recognised. Um, but then down the street. That's good. Yeah, I, I think so. Just I had to honk someone twice yesterday, which was embarrassing, but also they're clearly on their phone often if they slow oh, to take yes. off at the lights. Their head's down. Yeah, and so I was behind them and it's, it was a really short passage where you're at one light and you turn and then you're behind another light. Um, and I was driving to work and they didn't move, so I just gave a little and then they go, oh, oh, and then they go, and then you get to the next light, same thing again. Oh, do you do the same polite one? or do I you did, go... no, just a little, because then you get scared, because I don't know, it's a big car, yeah. and I just assume people driving big, dirty cars <laughs> might get angry. Yeah. So, um, but then I just changed lanes and took them over, because I drive well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you... But it's scary. You never know who's on the other side of that. Yeah, that's true. Especially now that club locks are a feature of the past. Oh, the club lock. <laughs> Jesus, what's a, club, what's a club lock? You put that on your steering wheel so no one would steer, steal oh. it. So you lock it in. That's yeah. what that is, yeah? Yeah. Mm. Well, it's but good that, that they're gone, isn't it? Because they're not necessary. You can't use it as a weapon? Is that no, what no, I know. But you, if you're scared in your car... It's I like, don't have one. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. That's why it's... Is that's any, what we're saying. No, I'm like, yeah. There was a question mark at the end of that. Yeah, like, that's right. You, you needed the inflection um, to go up? <laughs> <laughs> I learned nothing. 
Yeah. Uh, but the the whenever I drive past, especially cricket, I can't not look. It's I'm trying to. I want to see the ball. Mm. Because you don't want to miss anything. Yes. And so sometimes, one time I I honked sport, bypassing, and I just saw the most extraordinary slips catch I've ever seen in my oh, whole life. Oh, that is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and oh. it's, I've never seen anything more worthy of a honk. <laughs> but it was the, I think it's, is it the Doppler effect or, because I was moving along, so they would have just heard a, and maybe not just thought it was a completely unrelated traffic incident. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Well, hopefully with the universal symbol of honk joy, Mm. it cuts through. Is that that what Bobby did? Honk, 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 (laughs) honk, yeah. Uh, And then do you think that you've witnessed something that, like if this kid kicked on? I'm a part of that. A bit, yeah. <laughs> and, and do you think, because that sounds like an extraordinary feat of athleticism. Yeah, definitely. I, you know what, I, I reckon if he was about to go home after that, he would have stayed for another 30 minutes. I would have encouraged oh. him. Oh. Mm. Like, yeah, I, you ride like, the joy. Adrenaline, yeah, absolutely. Because he, was he wasn't, it wasn't a game. No, it wasn't a game. He was just having kick to kick with his, uh, yeah, like I said, I think it was his dad just yeah. standing in the goal. His dad's See, like, damn it, now I've got to stay. Yeah, you and that's your bloody horn. That's maybe we're cut differently because I'd be like, I'll finish on that. Oh, yeah, I'll finish oh, on done. that. Oh, yeah. Go yeah. home on a high. Whereas you're like, let's grind this success into the dirt. Yeah, yeah. let's milk it for all it's worth. <laughs> it's like, I should have retired five years ago and yeah. here I am. Go, let's go for a second honk. <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. We're joined now by a multi-winning musician, songwriter, author of one of the best rock memoirs of all time and a frontman. Of of course, hunters and collectors and the undertow. It's Mark Seymour, everybody. Yay! Welcome. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> where it's it's always great to hear your voice on the station. Uh, can I ask where, when did Triple R come on your radar? Oh God! Uh, I remember when the studio. I actually went into the studio and was. I think it was in um, Ligon Street. Uh, God, it's nineteen seventy-eight. Um, and a mate of mine was a, a radio announcer back then, and I used to. He had a Tuesday or Wednesday night, and we used to go in there and hang out. You know. Wow! Um, it was operating out of a uni. terrace house, maybe in Cardigan something Street, something like that. Oh. It was around that area, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I've had a long, t- very long-term association with the station. It's only uh, two years after it started. If seventy-eight was when you think it happened, yeah, it was pretty novel. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, uh, and the. Hunters and collectors are lifetime subscribers. Is that right? <laughs> well, you, that's what we've been told. That's what you. Li- that's what you list on the front of the building. <laughs> oh, actually, that's excellent. I actually <laughs> didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, no I, I subscribe myself. Of course, yeah. yes. No, it's always it's always a treat to see your name pop up. What? what oh, that's good. What role do you reckon Triple R plays in the the music community that you've observed? Well, I've never left Melbourne, so you know I've always lived in this region. And um, I think Triple R is foundational. I think it's had a the very fact that it's been had the capacity to endure for decades. It's it's just had a really profound effect on music culture and probably nationally, actually. Because um, you know I've often I've always been intrigued by the way new music. They're all listening to me. <laughs> yeah. uh, the way new music is disseminated and it's changed so much, you know, just in the, in the, the emergence of digital technology, of course. But um, 
people have always relied on triple R to expose them to new sounds, you know, and that aren't kind of filtered through some sort of demographic paradigm. Mm. Um, yeah, and then that's certainly how I became aware of alternative British and American music. I mean, dare I say, non, not Australian. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and back in that time I described earlier, um, yeah, so... And it's, I've, I just, look, in my last, I've always been massively supported by this station my, with my stuff. Um, particularly the last album, I got massive support from the last record. And um, I always keep that in the forefront of my mind because, you know, being an artist, I, I really do need to be uh, friendly people in radio <laughs> stations. <laughs> uh, it, it's so um, interesting, <laughs> yeah, thinking about especially Melbourne getting back on its feet. As well, what, what what about as a songwriter and receiving maybe even inspiration or listening to what's out there? Is there are there maybe bands that you've discovered through Triple R of the decades, or uh, when you say foundational, it's is it it's hard to decipher what's inspired by the radio and what's not because it's ever well, present. it's just really. I mean, my exposure to music, I've always you know, given I've been at it for a long time. It's, um, it's pretty random how I access music, but I'm, I've, my ears are always open to anything that triggers my sense of melody and just a turn of phrase or, you know, because I'm always looking at it from, partly from a structural point of view. But um, the music shop I go into always has triple, well, not always, but mm. pretty much every time I go in there, they've got triple R on. Mm. And just that, for example, is a really good example of how it, how it works and because the guys in there are all kind of you know they're interested they're listening to they're mm. all musicians and um it's just a family business and and i frequently say oh what's this <laughs> you know what do you listen to what's that and that someone will know you mm. know and just things like that i reckon are yeah. really critical yeah uh it's also the taking new music seriously as much as respecting what's been out in the past that every all the announcers appear to be immensely curious about the world around them. Well, I, th I think you've got to be forensic about att paying attention, you know. Mm. I think, and that's not easy to do, mm. you know. If you've got announcers who are actually discussing the background of a song or, or why the artist, where they've emerged from and why, they've, why they're successful or why they're emerging, what is it about their music that is actually delivering that energy and momentum for them as artists, I mean, announcers have to be kind of focused on that and most aren't, except mm. in stations that don't have that sort of um, overlay of commercial priority, you know. And it's pretty... Uh, and to survive in the, in the kind of... in the culture, mm. I mean, it's a, it's a really deregulated industry music, you know. It's, it's, it's not protected and propped up in any particularly meaningful way. Mm. Where do you feel that the that whole scene is going? I mean, from you talk back in 1978, the music on radio played a much different part to it does today. Where do you think a station like Triple R sits in 2022? Well, I think it's driven by listeners, you know. Mm. it's People are interested in... And I, look, I, I, I'm really... Especially coming out of COVID, I think that um, watching the way audiences are starting to re-emerge in venues and, you know... The, I mean, the whole nature of surviving as a as a recording artist is is pretty challenging at the best of times. You you know you you you're making a punt. You know mm. you're thinking a few months ahead and 
and it's all a question of whether audiences are going to turn up and listen. And I think that goes to the core of how this station operates as well. You've got to give out and hopefully you get back. But it's, it's, a, it's an emotion. There's a lot of emotion involved in it. Mm. And like the, if, I think, you know, institutions in the industry who try to extract that or take that out of the equation are do, not so much doomed, but <laughs> definitely remove the character from, from what music's meant to do. You know, it's actually meant to be this platform for human beings to kind of in- share experience you know mm. how uh given your the degree oh, to, say that. Given, <laughs> given to the, the degree to which you've traveled how unique <clears throat> is triple r because it's it's easy maybe to take it for granted mm. uh but when you go around are there are there many equivalents or is it, it's i mean of course there are but what makes triple r unique do you reckon and because it can't be an accident that our music scene's what it is and triple r's the heart of it well there's a lot of really hard working committed people who are really passionate about music and quite significant numbers and, and there's a tradition you know they say you know i'm not going to make a religious analogy or well, will anyway um <laughs> you know you keep a thing along alive for long enough and eventually it just becomes part of the zeitgeist of the of the community you know and triple r has managed to the the, the great thing is that it has managed to endure and you know, I get I get what you're saying. How you know it's easy to take these these things for granted, but I mean, many community stations have arrived and disappeared, you know, mm-hmm. throughout Australia. And Triple R just hasn't yet. So you subscribe now. That's right. That's it. Yeah, it's so. Um, when you when you come in to the studio, I mean, you're on last year, weren't you? Or you were speaking on out on the patio with Kate Kingsmill, I think. Uh, yeah, was it last year? Yeah, um, or 2021, yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah and it's, it's 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 hard to get rid of us, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, no, yeah. no. I, look, I, I I just felt really, I felt it was important to come in. Yeah, you know, just. I'm getting a bit older now and I'm sentimental and, you know, I I just really feel a close closeness to this institution. Mm. Um, Mark Zimmer, what an absolute treat to have you in. Thank you thank, so much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Ah, that's right. Triple R. Okay, the Golden Gibbo, named in honour of comedy icon Linda Gibson in 2004, is awarded to a local independent show that bucks trends and pursues the artist's idea more strongly than it pursues any commercial lure. Its inaugural winner was Eddie Perfect, and last year it went to our resident Friday funny bugger, Nat Harris, and we're wrapped it on our first day of Radiothon 2022. The talented writers and performers join us now. Eddie and Nat, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Thanks for having us. What an <laughs> intro. I didn't know about the non-commercial aspect of the Yeah, award. I know. I was really trying to make money. <laughs> oh, a lot yeah. of money. <laughs> like, I don't want to give it back now. <laughs> it's unethical to accept. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you both tell us about the role of uh, Triple R, not in, it, in your lives and maybe the role it plays in the artistic community? Yeah, definitely. Like, for me, it's been, like, it's such a huge opportunity, I think, for artists, like, 
to come on the station, like Triple R, and connect you with like such an open-minded community. You know, I felt the support like almost immediately. I think I'd done like one or two Friday funny buggers, and then it was the comedy festival afterwards. And I had, you know, just like a handful of people being like, oh, we heard you on Triple R, like straight away. It was was just, yeah, it was such an amazing thing for me to experience. And, I mean, that makes it sound like it's just self-serving, though. That's not (laughs) it at all. It's like, yeah, yeah, woo, i got tickets. Not at all. I think it's just like the broad kind of... um, the programming that Triple R offers for artists is amazing. Like the interviews and, and like you actually get a bit of space to like talk and learn about different artists across Melbourne. Like on the breakfasts or shows like Smart Arts with Richard Watts. Mm. I know like, yeah, he's out seeing all the shows. He's reporting it back to Melbourne. So it's it's huge. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like, um, I mean, I, I, when I grew up as a, you know, young artist in Melbourne, which is one of the best cities to be an artist in, i got to say, all Shut over up. the world. Um, <laughs> you know, I, it was the time of, like, you know, Beat Magazine and, and you know, I feel like Triple R was like Beat Magazine, like, but, it, but with bricks and mortar, you know. Uh, it was a way to be con- instantly plugged into what was happening culturally in Melbourne across everything, you know, all styles of music, all styles of um, theatrical performing arts. Every, every type of cultural expression was sort of represented here. And I had lots of friends that had different kinds of shows and I remember being guests on shows. And, in fact, I think, you know, Fiona Scott Norman, who got a show on Triple R about chickens at the moment, <laughs> you know, she's had, a, she's had a bunch of different radio shows over the years and she was one of the first pe- people that said to me, do you want to um, write a show for my Triple uh, – a song for, your, for my Triple R show? And so I – you know, some of the first comedy songs I ever wrote were for her radio show. And so mm. it was sort of an opportunity for all sorts of artists to be able to ply their wares and to hone their craft and to have a, an audience. But more than that, it was just like, you just think about the hole that Triple R would leave if it disappeared. And um, it's sort of like the ground, the earth in which all the, the plants are planted. You know, it's so important Um as a as an institution and the amazing artists that have been through yeah. here and all the different kinds of um uh i guess i guess you know like artists who have had a chance either musically or creatively to practice what they do and to communicate and to plug what they do to audiences it's just it's just a gift yeah mm. it's the first taste of being interviewed uh, for a lot of people mm. and it's you know it's so exciting to see everyone take off Having come through the doors of Triple R, because everyone here has their ear to the ground, yeah, rather than waiting to be fed what's already popular, yeah. Uh, which is, and now as Melbourne has sort of emerges from our two years, what, what about the the arts getting back on its feet, and maybe the role of Triple R there, and and how was, has the last two years been for you, and how do you reckon Triple R will play a role in lifting us all back up again? Yeah, wow, that's such a... I mean, I think it's just been such a huge comfort for so many people going through the past two years and it's amazing. People are so excited going out and performing live again but, like, it's still... There's so many challenges. There's so much risk that faces artists. So, yeah, I just think that 
the role is so important. It's yeah, like what Eddie was saying. If like the hole that would be left, yeah, if there wasn't something like Triple R, and even personally as well, just having something to like connect with mm. community and all of you during lockdown, like <laughs> zooming in and Skype and doing you know Friday Funny Bugger was yeah. And you've been doing it for five years now. Yes, mm. I know. What's that like? And you've just <laughs> brought me here to. <laughs> we've had it. <laughs> oh, this is your last one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> it's it's awesome. And mm. I love as well, like, talking about the the opportunity for artists as well, but, like, the community, the Triple R listeners, they're all out in the city and that's what I like, seeing them around, meeting them, the bumper stickers on mm. cars, it's like being in a sports team <laughs> where no sport is required. And you're way, <laughs> way cooler. So I love that, more, you know, just kind of meeting people or being like, oh, I listen to this, I listen mm. to that. Yeah, so. It's super cool. I, I, also, you, you, you know, as an artist, you use triple r in two different ways you know like you use it as a professional tool to be able to communicate what it is that you're doing to people or to be able to extend what it is you do on stage in a different kind of like medium but also you know selfishly as a consumer um it's this kind of like a a ready-made place on the dial that gives you an instant hook up to what's happening in Melbourne and I don't know if there's really anything else that kind of instantly does that mm. and for something that's like almost like um you know old trusty in the background yeah. you know bubbling away something pops up that catches your attention yeah. a gig or a song or a, or, or a comedian or whatever or you know someone does a review of a I always love hearing on triple R reviews of films and theater yeah. and you get like you know I'm you know, you get a discussion around art, which is something that you don't get when you see a printed review, which um, is often just, you know, one person's untested, un- <laughs> unchallenged opinion. Yeah. Um, uh, so when you have a kind of something that's that's sort of there and that we just accept is there, it, you can tend to take it for granted a little. And that's what I love about days like this is where, you know, we'll sit around going, well, what does it, what does it mean? And, and why is it important? Yeah. And I think that it's important to talk about why things are important because then otherwise people forget that they have a responsibility if they engage with Triple R. Mm. Like a real responsibility. You, you are part of that community. Mm. Um, uh, gives you fucking money. Yeah. <laughs> <Surprise>. <laughs> and we let you say that. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I didn't know if you could. But I'm like, no. You can't do that on postcards. <laughs> uh, what, about, uh, what about... I want to know... About your time in New York, and you know what you nominated for Tony, and yeah. what, what's what makes that? What is it about Triple R you think that is contrasts to what must be a heady, maybe at times I don't know, inauthentic experiences in showbiz? Yeah, the difference I think is money. Um, <laughs> not to say that you know, like Triple R is poor. Yeah, no, but it's more that you know. Broadway shows cost multiple millions of dollars. And so with that, um, it's the nexus of commerce and art. So it's like, yes, you're making a piece of, uh, you know, an artistic work that you are going to bring an audience into that you hope they're going to enjoy. But the sheer scale of it, when you think about eight shows a week, you have to get 1,200 bums on seats. Um, You have to have dynamic pricing. You have to be able to pay the running costs of your show which are extraordinarily high Broadway shows can be you know $500,000 in running costs a mm. week up 
Um, you have to cover those costs because if you don't, you um, you know, you're just hemorrhaging money. And so you have like a relationship between production and investment and creative artists. And that's not always an easy combination of things, but it does result in great work a lot of the time. Sometimes it can result in very safe work because people don't want to take... The more money it's at risk, the, more, the less um, people want to take creative risks. So it's a place of struggle really for that. Um, and so everything is scrutinised and everything is, you know, like discussed and uh, you're under a lot of pressure to, you know, you can't just like, oh, we'll give it a go, you know. Mm. Um, whereas that's different here. There's 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 freedom here. I mean, there's freedom in, in the Melbourne art scene a lot of the time to be able to experiment and try and to be nimble. You know, like um, if I do, if Nat and I do like a one-person show and we find there's like five minutes in it that aren't working, you know, we can take that five minutes out and we can put a different five minutes in or we can restructure our show to respond to how an audience is reacting to it. And we can do that in one day and put it on at night. That's mm -hmm. how nimble the process is. But with Broadway, it's like turning around the Titanic. Yes, you can see the iceberg ahead, but it's like, well, we're just going to hit that because there's no... <laughs> There, you know, there's thousands and thousands of dollars and so much time and te technical kind of um, aspects to making changes. You know, you get not you're not just one person making changes. There's an orchestra and there are stage technicians. So um, that atmosphere is one of fear in New York, <laughs> yeah. and there's nothing wrong with fear necessarily. It, it um, fear and pressure creates great stuff artistically, but it also can destroy things. So when it goes right, it's great. And when it goes wrong, it's a nightmare. And I've experienced uh, both ends. Wow. <laughs> uh, do we have time for Nat and... To ask me about my Tony? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, Nat and Eddie, congratulations on everything. And thank, thank you, you oh. for donating your time uh, for us this morning. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Subscribe, everyone. Yeah, thanks for letting me swear on radio. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasts, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or the Triple R website. <laughs>